and welcome to yet another exciting episode of Skeptics and Seekers. I'm your host, David the Skeptic, and this is Skeptics and Seekers Special Edition. Don't call it Shroud Wars. Call it the Shroud Wars Reboot. Because we have two completely different opponents in the cage. Uh, On my left, she is sometimes known as The Bear. Teddy, how are you? Doing well, doing well, girl. And to my right, we have every Shroudy's nemesis, Hugh Ferry. Hugh, how are you? I'm absolutely fine, thanks. Great. Normally, I would give people a chance to introduce themselves, but neither of you need introductions to this audience. And so... Uh, I am David, and I will be mostly quiet and out of the way for this show because we are talking about the Shroud, and I don't know any—I don't know enough, and I don't think I care enough. These guys are going to make me care though a little bit. Uh, and helping me moderate, uh, Mister Darren. Uh, I, I will not mention his uh, dreaded nickname, Darren. It's going to help me moderate this subject because he is quite a bit more knowledgeable uh, on it. And afterward, if if all goes well, Darren and I will do an after show where he explains to me all of the things that I didn't understand during this conversation. Uh, And so, Darren, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Excellent. All right. So let me just set things up here. First of all, we're not going to cover all of the Shroud of Turin in this one episode. Forget about it. It's not possible. Uh, But what I want to do uh, is to see if we can't set up this conversation as maybe the first in a series of conversations. Let's see how this goes. Own reasonableness. And so I want to build this uh, as why it is reasonable to not believe in the Shroud of Turin and or... Uh, why it is not reasonable to disbelieve in the Shroud of Turin, uh, depending on your perspective. Uh, I want to know if we can get down to a reasonable position, because I know that uh, Teddy, for instance, has said many times on the board, and it's riled many of us uh, up on the skeptic side, that it is simply unreasonable uh, to not believe in the Shroud of Turin. So I want to give her a chance to defend that, uh, and I want uh, Hugh Ferry to uh, tell us why she's wrong and why it is, in fact, reasonable not to believe. I am going to give you why uh, just a very brief sketch on why I can't be bothered much with the Shroud of Turin, in case there are some of you who uh, do not know my position. Uh, there, there are a number of reasons, but I would say the most basic reason is I was raised to be a biblical theologian. And so things begin when, in matters of theology. It begins with the Bible for me. Uh, and so I have to first look at the Bible and see if uh, what is being said about theology today makes sense of the literature that it's supposed to be from. Uh, and so I'm much, very much Bible as a piece of literature guy in trying to understand what, uh, what the authors were saying, what the hearers would have heard. Uh, in that sort of thing. And when I look at uh, the burial shroud uh, in the Bible, uh, there, there are a couple of verses that uh, give a description. Uh, and let's see, John chapter 20, verse 5 through 7. I'll uh, just read a, a couple of bits of that. Uh, 
he bent down, this is Peter, he bent down and saw the strips, plural, of linen cloth lying there, but he did not uh, go in. Then Simon Peter, who had been following him, arrived, I guess that wasn't Peter, uh, arrived and went right into the tomb. Uh, He saw the strips, again, uh, plural, of linen cloth lying there, seven, and the face cloth, which had been around Jesus' head, uh, not lying with the uh, strips, again, plural, of linen uh, cloth, but rolled up uh, into one place. The first thing I notice when I look at the Bible uh, for this shroud, uh, this burial cloth of Jesus, is that it's described as multiple strips of of linen, not one fourteen by four piece, and then there's a a head uh, cloth. And so once again, I I have no idea why we're talking about a single piece with a single image uh, when that's not how it's described in the Bible. Now this is this is one of many things. But this is the first place that I come to, and I simply don't recognize uh, today's shroud of shroud of Turin uh, as a biblical. Uh, artifact. And so that would be one reason. This is not, I just want to say for um, fairness, this is not what we're talking about today. We're uh, we are talking about, uh, very specifically, uh, whether the image is man-made, or at least whether it's reasonable to believe that the image is man-made or not. Uh, and so this is not uh, the issue today, but I just wanted to present it uh, to give the audience a little bit of an idea of why I don't even really get started with a shroud. It just, um, it doesn't resonate for me as something uh, that is in line with what the Bible says. Uh, I did not, uh, I was not a shroudy when I was a Christian. Uh, I would have said that, um, like many Christians today, that that, uh, the emphasis on the shroud, especially the particular shroud that we have, is uh, not only a mistake, but it might even be satanic. Uh, it might be some form of uh, idolatry. Uh, so, at any rate, that's me. And with that, I think that I am going to give the first slice of this uh, to Teddy. Uh, she might want to uh, respond uh, to what I said, or she might just want to ignore what I said and jump right into the topic that she's here to talk about. So, with uh, no further ado... Let the games begin. Oh, no, David, you know I'm going to respond. I, I... <laughs> so, um, so I find it, first of all, quite uh, curious and amusing that you would be looking to the details of what the Bible has to say, given that you're now an atheist, um, and given how uh, you like to... Uh, challenge uh, different aspects of of what the Bible says, and we all know that uh, with the Bible having been translated into different languages, as well as different versions of the Bible, uh, words and stuff, they matter, and uh, sometimes they have uh, been altered. So, one of the things that I have read, and and because that wasn't really the topic for today, I don't have everything in front of me, but just going off of my memory, um, I have have looked into this uh, aspect or or challenge to the shroud, and when I had looked into it, it, it falls away as a legitimate argument against it. In terms of the strips, that's, I 
think it's the NIV version of the Bible that terms it that way. But, um, you know, even if you're going to go with that definition, uh, there was uh, a chin band or a, a, a band around the jaw to keep the mouth closed uh, of the body. And uh, a lot of times scholars have referred to that V-shape, inverted V-shape in the beard, in the image, as that having altered how the beard is laying because of the chin strap. And also, when you look to the side of the head, um, there's a little bit of a mashing of it, which seems to evidence the chin strap being there. So uh, some people have said that also that there may have been um, some tying of the legs just to keep them uh, together and closed. Um, so uh, the other thing is, is that when you go to the, uh, the original Greek, which of course the, the New Testament was written in Greek, which I do speak, um, being a Greek American, uh, my mom forced me to go to Greek school and <laughs> once a week. And so, uh, I do speak Greek. Uh, the the word, uh, I believe, uh, I think it was how it was written in Greek, is sindon. And sindon means a sheet. And I remember having, when I had investigated this whole particular topic, uh, in the Greek, a sheet or a sindon can be something that they were even describing. It could be something like on a sailboat. On a or something small. So um, the idea that strips like a like an Egyptian mummy would be wrapped in that that wouldn't. Uh, it, it, we're not confined to that definition, which again I think is partly a mistranslation of what the original Greek was. But uh, Hugh, what do you say on that? You want me to come back on that? Right, well, uh, firstly, um, let's go to David, uh, who jumps on St. John. And for some reason, the Gospel of St. John is, is a great uh, one thing that everyone picks on because it mentions the uh, events happening around about resurrection time, perhaps a bit more than all of the others. Uh, but the other three Gospels don't mention the Greek for strips, which is orthonia. They mention this syndon that you were mentioning. And a syndon is a big sheet. You're quite right. It is John who doesn't mention Sindon, it is John who mentions Othonia, which definitely means strips. Now, the thing about the strips that Othonia means is, it very much depends what you mean by the word strips. It's it, it, sometimes used in Greek texts to mean bandages, which is obviously long and thin, and it also can be used to mean swaddling bands, because they used to truss their babies up like mummies. But it's also used... Uh, by some of the classical Greek authors, to be sailcloth, rolls of cloth that people would take on their ships, and then if the, one of the sails broke, they would take it down and sew another strip on. And those strips were probably a metre wide. So Othonia can mean wide, big strips, as well as little strips. However, if you want my personal opinion, I don't think John was there, and I don't think John knew. I don't associate, probably... Uh, David would know more about this than me. But I don't think John the Evangelist was John the Beloved Disciple. What's more, 
although his gospel does show quite remarkable knowledge of the geography of Jerusalem, I don't think he had any idea what the Jewish practices were, and I think he got them wrong. And what's more, when he mentions things like myrrh and aloes, according to the custom of the Jews, piling your body high with myrrh and aloes was not the custom of the Jews. So I think he was making that up. Now there's a controversial thing to say. Well, I just like the fact that you and I are kind of tag teaming against David. So we'll see. We see how long that lasts, but I'm enjoying it while it's happening. <laughs> okay, so that's my take on Orthonia and Sindon. Okay, um, we will we will just leave that there because I am not a part of the debate. <laughs> so I will I will just say I I find those explanations possible, uh, maybe even plausible, but I don't find them definitive. And if, if the argument is, well, you know, some of the people in the Bible who talked about it didn't know what they were talking about, I, I, think, I think that's a bigger problem. <laughs> you know, I think that's a, um, I think that's a, I think that leaves, leaves the, um, Christian, uh, torpedoing the authenticity of John in order to save the um, the shroud. And I, I think that's a bad trade theologically. Isn't that just more of an issue if you're kind of becoming, or, or if you're being more of an inerrantist or it, it, you can have, you can be a Christian and not necessarily think that everything in the Bible is as it is translated to be in these different versions of the Bible that we have. For example, there can be um, independent reasons uh, without having to uh, know all of the minutia or, or necessarily have to have all of the minutia in the Bible be 100% accurate and still believe in God. So how about we take the David Hume approach and uh, let's let's take a look at the evidence with this shroud and see see where the evidence starts uh, starts going and see which in, in which direction it starts going. Very good. You can have the first bite of the apple, Teddy. All right. Uh, well, in terms of, uh, do you want me, I, I'm not sure how you want you, me to do this. Do you have an opening statement? Uh, not really a full one. I can give you one extemporaneously. Very well. Uh, you're here to talk about um, the image in particular, but overall uh, for this series, the, the reasonableness of, of why it's reasonable to believe and moreover why it's not reasonable to not believe. And so if you want to, if you want to address the uh, overall theme or go straight into the specific um, topic, uh, I'll leave it up to you. Okay. All right. Well, um, just kind of a little bit of a background uh, in case uh, somebody's listening who is not overly familiar with with the Shroud of Torn, and, and it always surprises me how many people have never even heard of it. Uh, but the the Shroud of Turin, it's a uh, it's the purported 
burial cloth of Jesus. It's a piece of linen that is approximately 14 and a half feet by three and a half feet. And it has uh, a body image on it that is very, very faint, kind of a straw yellow color. And there are uh, red images on it that uh, are obviously meant to convey the appearance of blood. And so uh, there are a great many people who believe that that this is the authentic burial uh, shroud of Jesus. And there's a tradition that goes back to... uh, back to Constantinople and even earlier where people have thought um, that there was this cloth that was not made by human hands that had this image of, um, of Jesus on it. And, uh, you know, hopefully I, I think you and I had talked about maybe getting into the timeline and all that on a different show. Cause there, there's just such a huge amount of information concerning uh, the shroud. Uh, but anyway, uh, so, but there are also a great many people who think that this was a fake. And especially when in, um, 1988, the radiocarbon dating came out and, uh, was saying that the shroud, uh, that the age of the shroud was somewhere between, uh, 1260 to 1390, planting it into the medieval time period. Um, everybody and their mother started saying that, oh, the shroud, it was something created by a medieval forger. And uh, then you got the whole Darcy memo, which, you know, I'm going to poo-poo that whole thing because, and, and and, and that's just where this guy that had sour grapes, a big story in and of itself but anyway since when especially among skeptics does one person saying something about something else count as evidence uh just in and of itself especially um when they have a strong motivation to um to say something negative about something anyway we can get into that uh with a different show, but, um, but anyway, so the, this whole medieval forger hypothesis, uh, is what many, uh, skeptics tend to think that, that the shroud of Turin is a forgery. And there are some people who think that, no, it's not a forgery. Maybe it is the burial cloth of another crucifixion victim. Uh, well, that's not really the topic. That, and, and hopefully, we will have a discussion on that too, in terms of whether this is Jesus's burial cloth. But I, I think, from what we had talked about, what we're talking about today is whether or not this is a man-made item. This whole image, in terms of the body image and the the blood images, if that was create, if that was made by human hands or if it is not. Um, And so, uh, you know, if it was naturally created without, uh, without somebody trying to create it in terms of artifice. So, uh, 
so I think that's kind of where uh, a little bit of an overview about it. And uh, David, I don't know. Do you uh, should we let you say something before we get into all the nuts and and bolts of it? Uh, sure. Uh, go ahead. Uh, uh, right. First of all, yeah, there there are mentions of the shroud. First of all, in the Bible, well, that there is a shroud in the Bible, and of course, there was a great craze for, rec- uh, for relics of all kinds. So it's hardly surprising that burial shrouds turn up in Constantinople uh, as well, and they're uh, occasionally mentioned as being there. So there's the, the the fact that the word shroud connected with Jesus turns up before the Middle Ages is not at all surprising. However, never ever ever. Is there any suggestion that the word shroud or burial cloth is connected with image? There are any number of mentions of image and there are any number of mentions of burial cloths, but they are never, ever, ever connected together. And that, I think, would be a, quite a useful um, weapon in an authenticist's armory, but it doesn't exist. Then we get the Archaeopoetus, or whatever it's, however it's pronounced, Teddy's Greek's probably better than mine. But this means an image not made by human hands. Uh, well, it means anything not made by human's hands. And there are, I think, at this moment, you can go and see at least five of them, including a particularly ugly wooden statue, which I think is in Portugal or Spain. Um, and, of course, the Virgin of Guadalupe and things like that. They're all claimed to be not made by human hands. And the point about them is that... Almost all of them, the ones that you can see clearly, are most definitely made by human hands. So how did they get the idea that they were not made by human hands? It wasn't because they had some mysterious characteristics. It was because they had uh, the provenance of somebody said they're not made by human hands. And if somebody in authority says that, people believe it. The uh, Veronica paintings and the, uh, the Mandelian of Odessa was often, uh, which might be associated with them, was quite clearly a painting and probably had great lumps of paint on it and flaking off. But it was considered not made by human hands. It was a miraculous painting. You don't have to have um, some blurred and indistinct marks on a sheet in order to be a Poetas. Um, now, back to Darcy, a Bishop Darcy of Troy, who may or may not have written a letter, which may or may not have gone to the Pope. So let's forget Uh, Bishop Darcy altogether and and, um, all the nasty imputations that um, Teddy uh, uh, gives to him. Let's just look at what the Pope said. Okay, let me just just jump in real quick. Uh, This is just a note for myself. Bishop Darcy, is he the one who uh, said that the shroud was a fake? Yeah, yeah, in about 1390-ish. Okay. But let's let's pretend he didn't exist. Uh, The year afterwards... This man who didn't exist and didn't write anything, the Pope sends a letter uh, to the um, priory. It was a priory, the, the, the church at Lyre, saying that the shroud must not be. Um, well, it wasn't being proclaimed as the shroud, but it mustn't be exhibited as a genuine shroud. They weren't allowed to use any extra candles in the church other than what was necessary to see yourself, see your way around. They weren't allowed to bring any people into the church, any clerics into the church, other than was necessary for crowd management, basically. They weren't allowed to have any singing or any incense or any prayers. And there had to be someone who, when the doors were open, announced in a great loud voice, this is not the shroud. 
it's a representation of the shroud. Now, it, it, it may be that Bishop Darcy had nothing whatever to do with that, in which case the authenticists, and maybe Teddy would like to come in on this, will have to explain why the Pope should suddenly come up with this very, very strongly worded announcement that the shroud could not be taken as authentic. I, uh, I think that, 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 I think that the reason... Oh, I'm sorry, was somebody talking... No, no, it was just me saying oh. I think that sums up what you, what you, my response to your point. Okay, yes. So um, I think that the, there's a clear motivation on the Pope for doing that because when uh, the, the Pope was related to um, the Descharnies and he, I, I think that with Darcy stirring up all this fuss, Darcy's basically trying to strong arm the Pope into getting them to stop displaying the shroud because it was diverting tourists to their church, which um, Darcy, that wasn't like part of his uh, jurisdiction where he was, what, uh, they were getting money. I'm not clear on the details of that, but, but Darcy had an axe to grind he his uh what was it the roof collapsed at the church and messed up their stained glass windows and that costs a lot of money and uh he's wanting people filling his collection plates as opposed to the ones over in leary at the church there and so i think knowing that that he knew that the pope um was related to the Descharnies that it opened up the Pope to looking like he's engaged in nepotism, uh, being uh, letting his relatives display this. And so it, it, it's kind of like if you're at a competition and somebody's parent is the judge, the kid whose parent is the judge is either going to have it easy or is going to have it much harder. And so I think the Pope um, being related to them, he, he wanted to not give off the appearance of impropriety. And so as a result, uh, told him, hey, quit it, knock it off. I think so that, that could be the reason. Yep. So you're now saying that not only did the Holy Bishop of Troy think that the shroud was a fake, uh, but so did the Pope think the shroud was a fake. And in fact, so did Bishop, uh, so did um, Deshani say the shroud was a fake. Everybody said the shroud was a fake. Well, now, wait a minute, wait a minute. I didn't say that the Pope was thinking the shroud's a fake. I'm well, saying that the Pope's trying to avoid the appearance of uh, nepotism. So you think that when the Pope says, you must announce in a loud voice in front of the crowd, this is not the shroud, you're thinking that the Pope was actually thinking, but it probably is. I think the Pope was trying to cover his rear end, so he didn't look I think, bad. I think I'm a, I'm a good Catholic, and I can see you're clearly not. But I think it's a dreadful thing to say about I'm him. not a Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the Pope sees what goes on in the Catholic Church with hiding stuff. So, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to make excuses for people and i think there are plenty of good popes uh, and i'm not and i'm not trying to be anti-catholic or something but i'm just not going to be an apologist for people when i think that there are other things going on okay but but here we have three people none of whom say that the shroud is authentic so 
what on earth makes you think that the shroud is? Well, first of all, the Pope didn't say that the shroud wasn't inauthentic. He was telling them to stop saying oh, okay. it was inauthentic. There is a big difference. And I think that he was doing that for uh, personal motivations that he did not want to look like um, he was being partial to a relative. If a judge were to, were to be in that situation, the judge would need to recuse himself. And I don't see the Pope wanting to recuse himself. Do you? Uh, I don't think it, I, I, I don't think it need, he needs to. I, I don't think he thought the shroud was authentic. I don't think Darcy thought the shroud was authentic. I don't think Jeffrey Deshani the second thought the shroud was authentic. I don't Why, think. What, what basis do you have to think that Deshani didn't think so? Hmm? Hmm? Why, why would you think that Desharni didn't think so? Because when he held his exhibition, what really irritated the bishop was not that he said the shroud was authentic, but that he put it out that it was only a representation, but had all the panoply of authenticism surrounding it, so that the people who came to visit it thought that it was authentic. You've got to read the, Deshar the uh, Darcy letter very carefully. What really puts him in a rage is that Deshani is not saying that the shroud is authentic. He's saying that it's a representation, but putting all the panoply around so that it appears to be authentic. Maybe that, he's trying to cover himself because he obviously wasn't there when the shroud was created. Yeah. In terms of naturally, I think. So I think, if unless you know uh, with a hundred percent certainty the provenance of something, you might want to kind of hedge your bets a little bit. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, all this is remotely possible, but one of the points about Dale inviting us on, the, uh, David inviting us on the show, was to, to look at reasonableness. Yes. Here we have three people, all of whom say the shroud is not authentic. And authenticists all have to say, oh, yeah, but none of them believed it. There's absolutely no evidence that the shroud was authentic. There's no evidence that any of them thought the shroud was authentic. So authenticists have got to sort of make up um, possible motives why these three authoritative people should all pretend that it wasn't. And that seems to me less reasonable than thinking that they all said it was not authentic, they all thought it was not authentic. That's well, this... possible way of looking at it. Well, this authenticist doesn't give a hoot what other people say. This authenticist takes in terms of people just making statements this authenticist cares about what the evidence is okay. and so and that's you know what we're about to to get into so you know who cares what darcy said and the pope and all of them uh let, let's look at at the uh, yeah, details yeah. of this cloth i'd like you to yeah i'd like to move on to that but let's just say that those three State of statements from those three people in 1390 tend towards the most reasonable interpretation is that they all thought the shroud was a fake. Or the prima facie interpretation is that they all knew that the shroud was a fake. The shroud is not described as the real shroud until about 100 years later, until about 1450. People write all sorts of things to cover oh, yeah. their rear well, ends. Yeah, so. they might all be lying. But uh, on the other hand, might not be well, and you, you know to suggest that they are uh, well you know if if we're gonna if we're gonna go with that then you know let's just look at the what we're about 
Bible, and no, I know, I know that you're a Catholic, so I don't think I'm having to convince you of anything. But, but if that is the standard that um, people listening to this are going to go by, well, then you know, look at the Bible with all of the different um, attestations as to seeing the risen Christ. So, yeah. uh, you know, if if you're going to take things just like that, then. <laughs> but anyway, back back to the shroud. So. Uh, are you ready to get into the details on that? Yeah, move, on, move on to another bit. I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Yeah, 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 move on, yeah. Okay, whatever. yes. So, um, so we have this uh, this cloth, and uh, there was uh, a team of Americans uh, that formed a group called the Shroud of Turin Research Project, and. Uh, they were fascinated by the shroud and trying to figure out, you know, whether or not this was uh, a painting. That was actually what they suspected, that it was a painting. And so they were um, trying to figure out whether that was really the case or not. But um, aside from the history of that, uh, but this team, uh, the Sturp team, when they went and investigated and did research uh, and had access to the shroud, uh, which was at that time, of course, uh, not in the hands of the Catholic Church yet. It was still uh, part of the uh, the House of Savoy's uh, in, in, under their control, uh, and they're the ones that gave the Sturt team access uh, to to test, to do all sorts of tests on the shroud. But when Sturp, when the Sturp team did their analysis and they ended up putting out uh, a paper that people can read, and and uh, I'm sure probably, Hugh, you and I are probably going to attach a bunch of things, uh, or at least I should probably just speak for myself. I'll uh, attach things for people to read. Um but one of the so some of the important things and findings that the Sturp team found is that the shroud, the image on the shroud, and again we have the body image, which is like a a straw color, like a straw yellow color, uh, and then we have the the blood stain images, which are a red color. Uh, but what they found was that there was no paint that could account for these images. There was no pigment on the cloth that could account for these images, no dye or stain that could account for these images. And so then the first question is, what in the world is comprising, what in the world is making up this image? Now, one of the one of the scientists that he was not an official member of Sturp, but he was still kind of working on the sh on the shroud um, and investigating it. Uh, his name was Dr. Walter McCrone, and he is or was um, uh, my uh, microscopist. Is am I pronouncing that correctly, Hugh? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so uh, uh, he uh, ended up, uh, well, when 
let me back up. When they were uh, having access to the shroud, the the scientists, the Sturk team, they they were able able to uh, pull up fibers and threads and all sorts of particles off of the shroud. And uh, they, they put it onto uh, this special type of mylar tape that was especially made. Uh, Ray Rogers had it, Dr. Ray Rogers had it specially made for them so that the adhesive that was on that tape uh, would be soluble in uh, toluene um, and also uh, xylene so that when they would press that tape onto the shroud and lift it up, they could then flush with water, uh, or excuse me, flush with the uh, toluene solution, the adhesive yet still leave intact uh, the fibers and and uh, the particles that were being lifted off of uh, the shroud. And so that they can analyze um, these particles and fibers, and uh, and of course, before they did any type of chemical analysis um, on these things, they first looked at it uh, very closely through a microscope to learn what they could from that before subjecting it to the the chemical testing. But uh, again, so. With all of this testing, they didn't find paint, pigment, dye, or stain. Uh, what they were finding, however, is that the the red images were blood. Now, at first, they thought that it was primate blood. You will see in some shroud literature where they say human blood, and I don't think that that's, at least not for the most part, purposeful. I think sometimes people just misunderstood, and and then once one person writing about the shroud wrote human blood, then a lot of people tend to just cite to that or refer to that, to where they have mislearned something. And, uh, you know, we see this on the Internet all of the time. Somebody gets bad information and it spreads like wildfire. And then people are, you know, just uh, in the wrong about some information they have. But uh, so at first, you know, they they thought that it was indeed primate blood. And, and that was as far as the Sturp team went with it. Um, but since uh, science has come a long way uh, and now they're, understanding things like cross-reactivity between different species, uh, now they're starting to realize, you know, we can't be certain that it's even primate blood. So we do know that it's blood because they see porphyrins, hemoglobin, all just all sorts. They, they did um, to test the bloodstain images, they did 12 different types of examinations, checking through x-ray fluorescence, the uh, reflection spectra, 
microspectrophotometric transmission spectra, the hemochromogen tests, uh, you know, tons of stuff, bile pigments, protein, albumin, protease tests, and and some additional ones. Um, They did a bunch of tests. They didn't just look at it and say, oh, yeah, it's blood. No, they... Uh, Dr. Adler, who um, Heller and Adler were the, the people doing those chemical tests and uh, on the blood. And Dr. Alan Adler was a blood specialist, especially with uh, porphyrins. And uh, you know, and he they they said for sure it's blood. Uh, Dr. Kelly Kears, who um, who writes. Uh, has been has written a number of scholarly articles on the blood evidence and uh, and he's a, bl- a specialist. Uh, uh, let me point, just interject would, real quick, Hugh. Do mm-hmm. you agree that uh, it's blood? Do you stipulate that? I've I've always thought it was blood ever since Pier Luigi Bologna, the Italian, who didn't just look at teeny weeny little dots and fibers, who ripped out great chunks of the uh, shroud with his scissors and tweezers which the Americans largely tend to forget about. So he had great lumps of blood to look at. Um, and he was the one who identified it as group AB. And he was the, in fact, n- nothing that the Sturp team did could possibly have identified anything that they found um, as of a particular kind of blood or of a particular blood type, a particular species of blood. So this is all, a, this is all the it- Italian um, discoveries. And I go along with Kelly that it's not uh, scientifically provable that the blood um, is not from an orangutan or a gibbon. Um, but on the other hand, if I was a medieval person um, responding to the blood cults that were particularly popular at the time, and I wanted to put some blood onto a fake relic, I would have simply gone down the road to the nearest barber, uh, who were the surgeons of the time, and popped in while he was um, doing some bloodletting, which was the single commonest surgical procedure of the time so there was buckets of human blood readily available why go off and see if you try and find a chimpanzee so i think it was human blood okay so since we can stipulate at least between the uh two combatants that it was blood Mm -hmm. uh possibly human blood i think that we can move on to the next point but i haven't heard from uh darren so darren i uh i think i recall you uh, disputing or challenging the idea of uh, the, the blood or that whether it was blood or whether it was human blood. Did, did you have anything uh, to add to that? No, the um, for me, it's never been whether, I mean, for me, it's never been about the details of the shroud. It's always been about the, the structure of the arguments behind the shroud. Um, so we can grant that it's blood, but just because it's blood doesn't mean it's not um, a forgery. And then if you want to claim that the the uh, blood got on there by supernatural means, then you have to demonstrate the supernatural causation. So, okay. so we can, that's we can, just my thing. We can, we can grant that it's blood. We can grant that it's possibly human blood. We can't prove that it's human blood, but it's possibly human blood. Uh, so what, what would be the next step? In the process, then, um, if can I, can I respond to um, uh, Teddy's description of the Sturp um, investigations so far? 
Sure. Yeah, because um, she went in. Uh, you've got a list in front of you, haven't you, Teddy? Reading out all this spectroscopic. <laughs> well, you know, I'm not going to remember all of that stuff <laughs> off the top of my head, right? <laughs> the spectroscopic investigations were first done by actually um, applying their spectroscopic machine to the actual shroud while they were in Turin. Mm -hmm. Yes. Not applied to all the tiny little fibers that they brought back. Now, when they later, uh, much later on, in fact, not probably in the 21st century, had a go at some of the shroud fibers, the spectro, uh, the spectrum that they got from the fibers was completely different from the spectrum that they got in Turin. So naturally, because it was 20 years later, they said that the one that was in Turin was all wrong. And this is one of the things I find a bit irritating about the Shroud papers, is that whenever they disagree with each other, then the one that's the sort of the minority view is always chucked out as being not very, very important, or um, the instruments weren't good enough to read it and stuff like that. The well, where it was not the, where it, the are, with the minority view, are you talking about Macron or someone no, else's? No, I'm about the individual, uh, the Shroud scientists squabbling with each other. So, for example, the London and Morris um, spectrograph, which was trying to identify the quantities of iron oxide found on the shroud, they took a row of little dots, starting with the nose, and going out um, from the nose outwards past the line of the hair until they got to a blank bit of shroud on the other side. And I think they took eight, eight readings. So it's probably one every, I'm just sort of holding it up my finger, about one reading every half inch. Mm-hmm. And they've got a, a, a level, uh, an estimated quantity of iron oxide. And those readings correspond exactly to the intensity of the image at that point. So, for example, there's a lot of blood on the nose and there's a lot of iron oxide on the nose. A lot of image, I should say, not blood, on the nose. And a lot of iron oxide on the nose. And there was a lot of blood on the hair. And there's a lot of iron oxide on the hair. And just inside the hair, as you head towards the nose, there's a very dark bit where there's hardly any image at all. Sure enough, there was no blood on that particular bit. No, um, sorry, no iron oxide on that particular bit. And then the iron oxide was a sort of medium value as you go across the cheek. So the, there, was, there was an almost exact correspondence between iron oxide and image along that, that line of... Um, line of measurement. Well, that is usually discarded as being, sorry, the uh, instrumental inaccuracy. They couldn't possibly have got it right. When they did more experiments down by the feet, it was much less obvious. And so obviously, uh, be much better to assume that the whole thing was worthless. And I think this is quite typical of um, how we deal with, with people we don't like, um, or with, with ideas that our friends come up with, but we disagree with. We say, sorry, your instruments weren't good enough. So the people who did spectral um, tests to try and find out what elements there were in the blood failed to find any potassium at all. Well, there wouldn't be because the body was dead and the potassium starts decreasing. No, no, blood's full of potassium. But the point was... Not according to Adri Vanderhoven, there's a complete reason why there's no potassium. Uh, yeah, I've got a feeling she says something really bizarre about the potassium sticking to the cell walls of the hemoglobin of the red blood cell, and the molecules make it all ooze out, leaving the blood cells behind. Um, I can find it. I, 
I've got her whole explanation. Anyway, the point is not whether there's potassium there or not, because in fact the Italians, hey, bless their cotton sock, found lots of potassium. The point was that as soon as somebody from Sturp said, we can't find any potassium, the response was, oh, that's because your instruments weren't good enough. So as soon as we find an argument that possibly has some faintly contradictory um, evidence against authenticity, there's a great sort of gang fight from the people who are the authenticists who go, ah, it doesn't really matter, you got it wrong. My favorite one is that dear fellow, um, Robert Villarreal, sounds Italian, but I think Villarreal probably his name was, who looked at one of um, Ray Rogers's threads, and this was a whole thread that he'd managed to get hold of, goodness knows where from, uh, but she thought was spliced together, and everyone went, ah, this is terrific. He's going to prove that one end is linen and one end is cotton, and we're going to prove the um, reweaving theory. And yet Villarreal said, no, both ends were cotton, which, of course, completely destroyed the point. Why would anybody want to reweave some cotton into some other cotton? So what did the uh, what did the good people of Sturps about that? Ah, oh, his instruments were all wrong, uh, and he couldn't really tell the difference. Well, there has been the what issue of whether when the the linen fiber was spun, if there were some traces of cotton that were uh, on the, the yep spinning. all all of all of his bits were all cotton. He wouldn't have any linen in it at all. So immediately he was disregarded by the rest of his friends. Who, who said right. that everything was cotton? Roberto Villarreal. And in, who was he? He was the person to whom uh, I think Ray Rogers probably sent a little bit of thread that he had that was joined. Uh, I think it was something, it was only something like uh, 10 millimeters long, but the middle of it had a blob of some uh orangey brown glue in it which i think he identified as some kind of gum mm -hmm. and villarreal sent it off to one of his lab team to look at and it came apart as he was mounting it for inspection under 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 the microscope you remember well that? i i know that adrian vanderhoven talks about how she does not believe in the invisible reweaving theory because she um Trying to remember the details, but she uh, had reason as to why she was saying that there was cotton throughout, yeah, just traces. Probably. Yeah, yeah. Um, Can I get back to the, to the stuff? So we take sure. these sticky tape, sticky tape things, okay, and they're about, what should we say, a centimeter and a bit wide, and they're about four centimeters, five centimeters long. Mm-hmm. And they are taken by Ray Rogers, who had not only had his special tape specially made, but he also had his special application machine specially made. And he specially took all these things. And then he mounted them, specially again on, in a glass box. And you can see pictures of the glass box with them mounted so that they're stuck on the two sides, but the sticky side is downwards facing the box anyway. So he's got all these wonderful specimens. And what does he do with them? The first thing he does, he gets them home to America and he immediately sends almost all of them away. Why do you think he does that? To Macron, of all people. Why does he do that? I, I He held on to some himself and he then he gave some to Macron. Yeah. 
And the problem was Macron, and, and this kind of gets back <laughs> to the iron. Why did he send them to Macron? Well, because Macron is a it's famous a... macroscopist. What about Hella, who was a bio, uh, a, a microbiologist? Why not give them to Hella? Who well, I may because say, they're wanting you. to closely inspect it, and so you would give it, I would imagine, to somebody who's known for uh, looking at things under a microscope. Yeah, the whole team knew that by far the most qualified person in the world to look at these tapes was Walter McCrone. So they sent all the tapes to Walter McCrone. Now, what did he do? He cut them all in half, all of them in half. So he was looking at maybe a two centimeter by one and a half centimeter rectangle. Mm-hmm. What he did with his 32 half tapes, what was the first thing he did? I think he sent them back. No, he sent half of them back, but which Ray Rogers then kept and didn't give right. to Adler or Adler. But what did Macron do with his half? Well, I would imagine he inspected them. He took photographs of them. Okay. And what did he do with those photographs? Well, I don't know, but a photograph Pops isn't... Published them. They're all in his book, and they're all in his papers, and they're all in his peer-reviewed paper in uh, the accounts of chemical research. Well, most of the papers Macron has put out are in the publication that he owns and no? edits. Well, yeah, but you can say that of almost any publication, can't no, you? No, no, I don't think. Guess, I guess who? Well, who founded and edited Thermochemica Acta? Yeah, okay, that's Ray Rogers. But what about all of the other Sturt members who had their? papers put in <laughs> journals yeah, that were really, yeah, that was, that was good. I've always wondered, I don't know whether this is anything to do with it, but it would be interesting to know, except that unfortunately I think they're both dead now. Why would you want to publish some um, microscopical studies which you did in uh, Los Alamos, where are we, is it Arizona, places like that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But why are they published in the, in the, in the Canadian uh, Society of Forensic Scientists journal? I mean, I don't know. No, me neither. But it's odd, isn't it? Couldn't couldn't they get a proper forensic scientist journal, uh, an American? Maybe, may, maybe it's to not open themselves up to the Americans who are going to be sticking up for the Americans. Maybe yeah. it's so it can look less biased. Well, it's it's um it's a possibility, isn't it? Anyway, it's interesting. The point is, all Macron's well, not all Macron photos, but a number of Macron's photos are readily available on the internet to anybody who wants. They're published in his uh, his um, papers. He had he wrote two papers for his own journal, and he wrote one paper summing them up for the um, accounts of chemical research, which is a very highly respected peer-reviewed journal. Uh, and of course, he wrote published lots of them in his book, Judgment Day for the Turin Shroud. And anybody at all can look at those pictures and say, "Gosh, look, it's covered in red dots." Now you cannot say they don't exist. They are there. Now, either he put them there himself and cheated or uh, something like that. But it's, it's Sturp never denied that there were random uh, pieces oh, no. of iron oxide on there. And oh. that was from the 52 documented oh, yeah. paintings that had been sanctified by being pressed up against the, the authentic shroud. Yep. And with, then with you've that, got Isabel Pickcheck. An artist who did an experiment herself to see how much 
uh, would flake and vermilion that which that color which Macron says is accounting for the red color. That is one of the worst at flaking off. But mm. back to Macron, mm-hmm. um, something that you had said earlier. Uh, this brilliant microscopist, you know, people can be beyond brilliant, yet make really serious errors. And sometimes it's the uh, kind of most silly errors that these people are prone to falling for. They just don't even think about it. And um, and apparently that's what happened to Macron. Um, When you say say apparently, it's not apparent to me. Is it apparent? Is it apparent to you? Well, it, it is obvious. What? It is apparent to you that Macron obstinately stuck to his explanation for his red dots, even when somebody perfectly reasonable came up with a different explanation. Is that what you're saying? Right. Here's, yes, I do. I do think he once he dug his heels in the sand, uh, he didn't want to unstick them. Right. And you know, he dug his heels in the sand. Pardon? Do you know why he was tempted to dug his heels in, dig his heels into the sand? Have you read oh, Heller's? Wow. Have you read Heller's book, um, whatever it's called, Inquiry into the Shroud or something like that? Uh, no, I haven't read the book. Oh, the book. it's brilliant reading. It reads like a novel, and well, it's, it's not entirely invented, but it, it's quite chatty. But it makes it quite clear that at the very first um, conference after the return from. Uh, Turin, when all the scientists gathered around to say what they'd found so far, Ella and Adler hadn't found anything at all because they hadn't had anything at all to look at. I think Macron had sent them three slides. Uh Anyway, so Macron turns up and he says, I've spotted iron oxide and he shows them all these pictures. And immediately everybody goes, he's wrong. They had absolutely no evidence for that. They just decided he must be wrong from the start because their other evidence had led them to believe that the shard was authentic. That was one of the worst things that they did. And that was that made uh, Macron realize that he was flogging a dead horse as far as his colleagues. No. Okay. Let's get into the details of this. First of all, Macron, the error that Macron made was when he was analyzing um, the iron oxide and all of the other things that he was analyzing, he never bothered to remove the items from the sticky tape. He just slapped the sticky tape onto the glass and looked at it through the glass. And then that ended up, as um, Adler and others have said, uh, it it changed the uh, what is it the reflection refractive uh, index the, the, the yeah the the refra- what is it the refractive index on it and so he said no it can't be blood because uh, of the refractive index wasn't right and so but but Adler did it right he ended up removing the particles from the sticky tape and analyzing it straight. Plus, Macron never, ever analyzed the whole... He was never there 
looking at the actual shroud and having his nose not, not, you know, not, a centimeter away from it. He not, only had those sticky tapes that he didn't analyze properly by by not removing it from the uh, from the tape. And so that threw off the refractive index. And he never uh, there's a fantastic debate between if somebody wants to hear some really good stuff, uh, a debate between Dr. Gilbert Lavoie and Walter McCrone, and McCrone just does not have an answer for the criticism that he never bothered to remove the particles from the sticky tape and that that threw off what the refractive index was. Mm -hmm. um, and he kept trying to stick to, oh, it's vermilion that's accounting for the blood. Well, you know what? Vermilion does not have hemoglobin in it. <laughs> And all of and porphyrins and all of the other things that make blood very distinct from a paint pigment. I mean, vermilion has what is it? Mercury sulfide, I think. Yeah. And that's got the opacity um, of lead. And so when they did these scans on the shroud, if all of those blood marks. Uh, were made from such an opaque material, they would have been able to have spotted tons of vermilion. But the vermilion that they spotted on the shroud, which, yes, it did exist, Sterp acknowledged that it existed. But that vermilion was flaked off from one of the 52 documented paintings that were touched to the shroud. And artist Isabel Pixet, who was a prodigy, at age 14, she had applied to this, uh, submitted a uh, painting for a contest to, to something like put do a mural or something in like a Vatican library, something really big like that. And she's a little 14-year-old pipsqueak, and they picked her. And she does the, she, they refer to her as having been a monumental artist because she does these uh, murals and drawings that are, I think, 70 feet tall. And so she is an expert among experts. But, you know, she was extremely um, critical of Macron because Macron, till his, I mean, he just kept hammering, this is a painting, this is a painting. It's like, where is the paint? And he kept saying, oh, it was just a thin watercolor of diluted, iron oxide and for the body image and then it was vermilion for the blood well then how come on the scans are we not seeing proof of all of this vermilion everywhere why why do we have elements of blood where the blood image is and then um and then he was saying uh Macron's theory is that uh uh, for the medium that it was like uh, animal proteins and that that was sort of the binder uh, and all of these things, uh, the binder that he was talking about is water soluble. Well, when the fire, when, when the fire of 1532 happened and, and the shroud had to get doused, well, I mean, it wasn't the whole thing, but parts of it got hit with water. If it was a water soluble image, the image shouldn't have been should have been destroyed. Now Walter McCrone tries to say, "Oh, well, like in parts of the the abdomen, chest area on the shroud image, 
you see where it looks like these these watermarks and stuff. Well, Dr. Gilbert Lavoie pointed out these are calcium rings. These aren't these aren't what you know that the image was destroyed. And Dr. Gilbert Lavoie made the point of saying if you look uh, microscopically at those calcium rings, guess what you see underneath the image undisturbed because the image was not paint as Dr. McCrone. So, so McCrone, I mean, I'm not trying to take away that this man was great at what he did, but sometimes great men can make errors of monumental proportion. And because of his uh, just constantly hammering that paint theory, you've got a whole bunch of people out there that um, just kind of cling to the mantra of, oh, it's just a painting. It's a painting. It's not a painting. And, so, and we'll get so into me, the details of that. Let me, let, me just, let me dive in right there as we have rounded our uh, one hour mark. Uh, the conversation is uh, heating up, uh, which it should. But I just wanted to, uh, I wanted to know at this point if we can find a little bit of agreement before moving on the next point. Uh, so, uh, Hugh, are there would would you be willing to stipulate um, that there are some things the image can't be? So obviously, uh, Teddy believes that the image is uh, the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, so I, I know that you don't agree with that, but then again, you also would agree that it can't be Plato. So, right. w so what are some things that you can stipulate uh, that it can't be? And that way we don't have to go over the things that you both agree with. Okay. Well, um, I'm happy to, well, first of all, make a, a, a definite distinction between the image and the blood. Uh, the blood probably is blood. Um, I'm thinking it's quite likely that it is um, at least enhanced. Um, I don't know what the proportion would be. Giulio Fanti also says he's found vermilion in in uh, bloodstains, which is different, of course, from the stuff that uh, Macrone found. Um, and he thinks that the blood might have been touched up later. Either way, the blood is 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 a bright pink um, at the moment. It's quite a, it's quite a, uh, an extraordinarily bright pink, and it's not possible that any blood degradation product could uh, could could result in that colour. So I, I'm happy to agree that the blood is blood, but I think it must have some other thing in it to make it pink. The image, on the other hand, is not pink. The image is brown. And it's straw yellow yeah, is how they term it. it it's, it's certainly not pink. Um, now, I'm fairly sure that particulate matter of some kind makes up a component of it. But again, I'm not sure that that's the most important component. I think the... The colour on the fibres themselves is probably the most important bit. Now, Macron um, tested the linen fibres with um, a, a, a reagent to see if he could detect protein. And he found little blobs of protein on it um, dotted about. But it wasn't, to my mind, the blobs of protein wouldn't be enough to account for the degradation of the fibres. So I've been working on for years now um, some sort of acid degradation of the fibers and reading the books of instructions by various medieval um, artists who came up with these books of instructions like Cernino Cernini for example and um, 
they, they come up with various recipes to try and uh, get your paint to stick onto the cloth. And I may say that um, the med medieval people were quite good at making paint stick to cloth in such a way that it wasn't, you didn't wash it off. Um, otherwise, they couldn't have had painted flags in the rain and things like that. But, um, oh, and they did paint flags and they did use them in the rain and they didn't wash off. So uh, what we're needing to look at is some kind of medium which perhaps could crack off or just maybe the whole shroud was washed as far as I can see, but leaving the um, image behind. And that I, I'm quite happy to work at the moment. I've been working for ages and still happy to work with the fact that the image is really made of the, what do they call it, oxidized, dehydrated, conjugated, whatever it is, uh, surface, surface, the surface of, the, um, of, the, of the cells, of the flax cells. Now, one of the things that the Sturk team were spectacularly bad at, and I think I can slightly blame um, Heller here because he, didn't, he was the person who should have known better, and that is none of them had any idea of the microscopy of plant cells. We hear from the start, uh, everyone talks about the, the, the uh, tube down the middle of a flax cell as being uh, a medulla. And this is an absolute giveaway. A medulla is the tube down the middle of a piece of wool, an animal cell. The thing down the middle of a flax cell is a lumen. Now, the thing is, you might go, oh, it doesn't matter. They got one thing right, one thing wrong. If they had been biologists of any kind, they would never have described the hole down the middle of a flax cell as a medulla. It can only be described as a lumen. So it just goes to suggest to me that they didn't really know what they were talking about. Now, let's consider our flax cell. So we've got a hole down the middle, which is, of course, made of nothing. It's a hole. And then right around the outside of that, we've got the cell wall. And this is divided into two. The secondary cell wall, which is almost entirely made of cellulose and is quite difficult to uh, degrade using acids and things like that. And then the primary cell wall, which is around the outside of it, and that's the one that's famously, whatever it is, 200 nanometers thick or something like that. And that's largely made of hemicellulose with a bit of pectin thrown in. That's the one that's much easier to degrade. So that's what I've been trying to degrade myself using stuff like vinegar and lemon juice and things like that. Okay, so, oh, I may say at the sorry. moment. <laughs> anyway, no, carry on. Well, I was going to say regarding the hemicellulose. Uh, yes, I, I've read too that it is... Uh, much easier to degrade than traditional cellulose. The problem with it is, is that the shroud is, doesn't look like it's easy to degrade. It's actually remarkably in phenomenal condition, uh, especially if you think that it was around, uh, you know, from the first century. Um, but I, I, I've got some things to respond in general. You mentioned the um, the blood, that you think that the blood might be enhanced. Well, I would say that, you know, you're certainly free to think that, but there's no evidence for that. Uh, yes. That has that has been examined, and there, we have no evidence. Yes, we uh, have. We what's have, the evidence for we that? Have both Macron's vermilion, we have a certain amount of vermilion, a tiny bit of vermilion found by the Sturp team, and we have Giulio Fanti's vermilion. We've got three completely independent groups of people studying the shroud. All three of them have found vermilion on the bloodstains. Well, now, 
it's all very well and so it's there now it's all very well saying ah oh, yes well this this may be due to people lying paintings on top of the shroud and the paint flaking off the paintings and that sort of thing but that's the thing that you've got no evidence for Sure, I do. I, we don't deny. Stirp never denied that Vermilion was found. No, but made up a reason for the Vermilion being there, which has never been justified. Well, wait. I'm, the reason for the Vermilion being there is because somebody who had the fake shrouds that were being sanctified used Vermilion, and it flaked off. That's what you say. It's very. It's well, no. It's but it's there's very, no evidence of that at all. Well, yeah, it's 52 paintings that have been documented that have touched the shroud. And oh, yeah. is part there's, of no, there's no evidence that those 52 paintings have been laid paint side down onto the shroud in such a way that the vermilion on the paintings exactly match the bloodstains on the shroud. That's just made up. Well, nobody's saying that. I, I'm certainly not saying that the shroud's uh, bloodstains are made of vermilion. They're, they're blood. I mean, where else are you getting all of the other components for blood in vermilion? Because vermilion is obviously chemically extremely oh, no, no, distinct. You're, you're, you're twisting my words. I said that the bloodstains are made of blood. I said that they've got vermilion in them, which touch them up, which is why they're pink. And what yeah, I'm I, saying, that vermilion, there's no evidence whatever that that vermilion came from these other 52 shrouds, which are alleged to have been laid face downwards onto the actual shroud, for which there is no evidence whatever. Well, I, I, think, I think Isabel Pickcheck was saying that it was face down. Now, I don't know what she, she Yeah, but because she was a stained... Isabel Pickcheck was a stained glass window and mural maker. She knew nothing about the history of art. And, uh, 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 she knew nothing. I, I think that she did. be... She uh, wasn't even an anatomist. Most, most, all her, all her uh, drawings and paintings are fabulous and they're huge, but they're not anatomically um, precise and they weren't intended to be. Uh, no, they're not. And, it, well, and, and that gets us to later on into some discussions in terms of... Uh, anatomical accuracy but back to back to the pink so um in terms of explaining the pink color because that's something that has uh made everybody wonder because naturally uh old blood ends up looking either a very dark brown to a black color and uh back to uh, Adri Vanderhoven, I think she is the one who has come up with why it is, it, and it just puts everything together, uh, why it is that the blood has maintained its, uh, its pinkish red color. And she was saying, and there's evidence for it, uh, that the, the shroud during the manufacturing process there was yellow matter dye put on it which uh, among other things acts as a preservative and um, and that's probably one of the reasons why the shroud is still so flexible and in excellent uh, condition given its age but um, but this yellow, matter dye. Now let's go back to where I said in the beginning, no paint, no pigment, no dye, and no stain can account 
for the body image or the bloodstain images. But that yellow matter dye, guess what it is soluble in? Toluene, or if I'm pronouncing that, toluene, the yeah. chemical that Adler was using to rinse off the adhesive from that mylar sticky tape. Yes, and so, so brilliant, yes. And so, uh, and this also accounts for why I think it's the Reyes sample, and because they're the and the sample that was radiocarbon tested that had yellow matter dye on it. And people were saying, well, wait a minute, how come we've got this difference? It's because <laughs> the toluene stripped off the yellow matter dye that was just just a super thin layer part of the manufacturing process. But that yellow matter dye did not account for the image. That was the background. And that might very well be why the, um, the shroud is sort of that straw yellow color. It may be that a little bit of that yellow matter dye um, is doing. So, you know, maybe Ray Rogers with his, uh, the, the Maillard reaction, because they talk about, well, that's brown, but, this, but the shroud is straw yellow. You know, maybe that accounts a little bit for the differences. I don't know that it explains all of the properties. Of I think, I think, I think can, I, can I say how you're being marvelous? Do you know well, how I'm you're... not. Adri Van Der No, 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 it's you who are being so wonderful because what you are doing is you are being both sides of the Sturt team together. So you began your, your statement, Malud, by saying that the Sturt team definitely found that there were no pigments, paints, dyes, or stains. And you are now saying, because you want to pick up Adrie van der Hoven, that they were actually wrong when they said there are no dye, uh, stains and dyes, because they'd washed them all off with the toluene. So that well, statement uh, you now agree is incorrect, and they're no, wrong. No, 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 are no. I dye said that, that can account for the body image and the bloodstain images. So there's a difference whether there is an even... But wait a minute, there are lots of dyes that wash off with toluene. Yellow matter's not the only one. Red matter's another one. Any of the alizarine dyes, or for all I know, lots of other ones. I just, I must, I must pour well, some I mean, I, my shirt I, and see if it goes bleached. I don't know. I, I mean, I would say, yeah, though... Both I, Do you see, or, and perhaps my moderators can say, you can't say on one hand that the Sturp team were correct in saying there are no dyes on the shroud, and then on the other hand say, uh, but don't worry, all the dyes could have washed off. You, you're, you're saying two things which are directly contradictory, and what's more, which I think is just wonderful, you believe both of them. No, because first of all, when Sturp, when they were stripping the blood off of the fibres... They never stripped any blood off the fibres. Sure they did. When, when, well, it, I mean, off the, when they were examining the, the fibers with the blood, yeah. they found that underneath it wasn't yellow, the color of the image. It was the background color, which was whitish. And, of course, that's why they, um, the mantra is 
blood first in terms of how the shroud was made that you had the blood first mm -hmm. image second yeah. because because where the blood is and also where the serum halos are around the blood stains the serum which of course doesn't come from vermilion right vermilion doesn't seep out serum does it With yeah, all yeah. The properties well, well, it yeah, it doesn't. Yes. Right? Yeah, or, so, or lemon, lemon juice has exactly the same effect. Is serum is? Yeah. Are you saying that lemon juice is chemically identical to human serum albumin? I don't think so. It has the same. It has a very similar effect when you look at it. Have you read uh, Kelly Kearse's Similar. Well, the, you know, uh, our DNA is similar to a chimp's, but it's sometimes that one or two percent difference that makes all the difference in the world. Yeah, but there's nothing in the serum. The only reason we know the serum's there is because of its appearance. It's never been analyzed chemically. So let me uh, let me let me I just pop in. Let me just pop that's in uh, one more one more time here, as our time is uh, rapidly escaping us. I uh, just want to say for uh, the listener, it's uh, it's wonderful to see all of the the great preparation on both sides, and uh, I hope to get much more of this in the future, but I want to see if I can't focus the conversation on just a couple of um, be beginner questions, <laughs> because I, I, I fear that we've gotten well into the advanced stages uh, of, of some of this, and um, if you're anything like me, you might be having trouble keeping up. So let me, let me see if I can um, um, bring us back to just a couple of questions. Um, that uh, that I think everyone can uh, wrap wrap their minds around. Uh, the first question I I think I would go to you, uh, Teddy, uh, about the image itself. So, how how does the image of a person who was uh, who had a cloth laid on them uh, get into that cloth? I mean, is that a common thing? Do we have other burial shrouds with other images in it from that time that we can look at? I mean, is that, uh, or, or is this a one-off Well, of course thing? not. That, that's why the Shroud of Turin is special, it, because there are lots of people who have, uh, lots of Jewish people, lots of Muslims who have been buried in uh, burial have, have cloths. We, have we never recovered those cloths? Well, I'm sure some, I mean, I know that the Jews tend to uh, sometimes then get the bones out and put them in an ossuary. So the, I would assume you've got to unwrap, uh, you know, take right. the So why, the why are there no off. images, no cloths with images prior? And how, how would you say? Because there's only one Jesus. Okay, so. <laughs> it's resurrected. Right, so Jesus and his resurrection, maybe you can be more specific about how the image was burned into the cloth? Well, that's the million-dollar question uh, in terms of uh, the mechanism of action. And uh, there have been a number of hypotheses regarding it. But the, the thing is, a lot of people have been able to fake up stuff, you know, with flour and oil and, and this and that. Uh, you know, through the sun burning, you know, making images. And uh, the problem is, is that the Shroud of Turin has a lot 
of properties that uh, are complicated. And it's hard for people to actually even replicate one. I'm not going to, I'm not going to go as far as to say that it's impossible to, to replicate one. I, you know, maybe even replicate a second, I, I which I, I'm not so sure about. I'd love to see somebody that does. I was, I was reading something way. from 2009 where a person uh, claimed to replicate uh, the shroud and its unusual properties. But I, I'm not really asking about replication. I'm asking, what do you think? Maybe I'm asking you to speculate. What created the image? When I when I had Barry Schwartz uh, on to talk about this, Mm -hmm. uh, he he did not believe that um, the image was legitimate either. But he also didn't want to go into what his uh, theory was about the image, and so I would like to at least hear a reasonable proposition a story of how mere uh, of how being resuscitated from the dead puts an image on the cloth it, it's a I, it's a pretty I, straightforward question and i would i would love to get an answer it it's a straightforward question you know kind of like well how was the universe created <laughs> That's an easy, straightforward okay. question. So you're just saying the image the answer, is a miracle. It's not It's not through any kind of natural well, process at all. It, as, as far as, I mean, if we're going to go where the evidence leads us, then the evidence thus far is that it was through some miraculous, I, I would imagine, in terms of if I'm going to speculate, and this is what I think happened, but in terms of the details, it's like, who knows? I, I think that as part of bringing a dead body back to life, I think that there was some sort of force of energy. Radiation? That, uh, well, I don't know that it's radiation. I think, because I know some people have their little radiation theories. Um, I think that it's some sort of God-derived energy, probably something that that we just have no familiarity with. Okay. So theologically that, speaking, that if there's brought a, I, the life I, back to life, right? So the I'm, body I'm, back to life. I'm just trying to cover as much as I can with with what time remains. So theologically speaking, because that's that's always what I'm interested in. If if this unnatural process happened and left this unnatural image uh, on this strips whatever, um, why is there no mention of an image uh, in the Bible or in other literature around that time? Why, why if, if this thing existed and they had it then, didn't they ask right there at the cross, what is this image? Well, we don't know for a fact, obviously, whether or not the image was present uh, ab initio or if it took a little bit of time for it to uh, to develop. We don't know. Might, might it have uh, developed, say, a few hundred years later? I, I mean, who knows? Who knows? I mean, it, it would. It, the only person, the only yeah, people would would be the people that that um, that had custody of the shroud. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna throw it over to Hugh because I'm gonna ask you a similar question. Obviously, not the same question since you don't believe the. 
image is some kind of magic. But what do you think uh, the image is? And I would like for you to comment on why didn't why doesn't history, uh, biblical history, give us uh, any mention of this image? Yeah, I'd love to. The thing is, it's got a lot to do with reasonableness at this point. We've been discussing very precise points of uh, technical science observation, which either it is or it isn't, and that sort of thing. But when it comes down to exactly how something is done and it's not been done before, whether it's a miracle or not, or we haven't got a, a demonstration of it, we have to go for what is reasonable. So this is my idea of what is reasonable. I'm going to start with the Easter sepulchre. I'm sure I've explained this to somebody. The Easter sepulchre which was a feature of medieval churches and is still a feature of some churches, which was um, a wooden box in many cases, um, which on Good Friday in thousands of churches throughout the whole of Europe uh, was placed in the north transept of churches. And in a lot of churches, a crucifix or a figure of Jesus was placed in that um, wooden box with a shroud wrapped around it. On Easter Sunday, a little play was enacted in which the uh, priests or clergy would go out to the north transept. They would find another member of the clergy dressed as an angel sitting on the box. And they would say that the, the angel clergyman would say, why are you here? They would say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he would say, he's not here. Here is his shroud. Take it and show the people. And the remaining priest went back to the altar and displayed this cloth to the people. Now, we have examples of the wooden box. We have examples of the um, figure of Jesus that was placed in the wooden box. What we don't have is any examples of the cloth that the uh, figure was wrapped in. However, some of those figures are almost like bas reliefs. In other words, they're not a full and exact model of a dead body. They look more like um, a thick board, maybe, I'm just sort of holding my finger, 15 centimetres thick or something like that, carved across the front with the figure of the dead body of Jesus and carved on the back with the figure of the dead body of Jesus. So if you get a figure like that, of which there are some, and you spread the whole figure with some kind of stain-making um, uh, colourant, and this is what I'm not sure of at the moment. I've just been carrying out lots of experiments with Marmite, funnily enough, but that hasn't worked. Um, but I'm, I'm hopeful of using the Gala Shelley idea that a 1% uh, mixture with 1% of acid in it of one kind or another might be the answer. Anyway, so you then spread the shroud onto this figure, and when you peel it off, you've got the... Um, the sticky stuff all sticking to the shroud. Now that's pretty horrible, but you then wash the shroud completely and the sticky stuff all comes off. But because of the content of the sticky stuff, it has degraded the cloth underneath. And I think that they put this figure down face up, laid the shroud on it, peeled it off, then put the figure down face down, laid the backside of the shroud on that, peeled that off and then went and, and, and washed it. And that's how I think it was done. And all I need to do is to find what the chemical was that it was mixed with. And I'm going for wine at the moment because in one of the medieval liturgical descriptions of what happened on Good Friday is they took their image down and they wash it in wine. And if you wash something in wine and then you don't then rinse all the wine off, 
presumably the wine goes all sticky and slightly acidic and vinegary. And if you then put something on that, um, with any luck, that'll make a mark on the shroud. And that, that's on, on the cloth. And that's, that's what I'm going for um, at the moment. Now, can I do? Can I go back to the theological bit now? Oh, but oh, there's. No, 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 wait, wait, hang, hang, hang on, hang on to you though, because I, I was asked two questions, I, I, and I want to come back on right, the right. on, so on the second one. Definitely, and that is, if we've got absolutely no idea what actually happened, because nobody saw it, and let's take the Gospels as huh, gospel for the time being, then one way of saying what happens when a body comes back from the dead is to look at other examples. And, of course, the New Testament has five other examples of people who came back from the dead. And not one of them is associated with one of these great bursts of energy or flashes of light or anything like that. What happens is they just get up. Life returns to them and they get up and they walk home. And I don't see why Jesus needed any some particular flashy kind of getting up when all these other people could just get up and walk home. Well, that perhaps little... because he's God incarnate. Does it matter? Does well, he? I does, think it does. Why, why does he need a flash of light when nobody else does? What's he need a flash of light for? He's God incarnate. What's the point of the flash of light? Perhaps if nobody could you know, see that flash of light can put an imprint on a shroud so that when God put Jesus on this earth, so that the people during his time period could actually see god incarnate oh, after he was resurrected fantastically circular reasoning if, if you are no, no 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 it's it's huh? it's it's uh, listen it's it, here, here's here's the like because it made an image on the shroud that's what you're saying uh, well okay if god <laughs> wanted okay so you said you're a catholic yeah so i would assume that you believe that jesus was god incarnate correct yes Okay, so I would assume that you probably agree with me that when God put Jesus on this earth, that the whole purpose for him putting himself, uh, you know, I believe in the Trinity, I think you probably do yeah, yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. Well, a normal it, theology, yeah. Okay, so, so the whole point of putting Jesus on earth is so that people could interact with with this jesus to see what he was like to to learn from him to to learn his his philosophy and to see his miracles and um and to help make god be more relatable to humans so that we could somehow grasp at least a portion of what god is so Obviously, when Jesus died and was resurrected, now he's no longer roaming the earth. But I think God left the shroud so that we still have, because we've got his, I believe, that's his face. And so, uh, and I've seen these recreations where these artists through computer models and all of that has managed to recreate the face but you know what when you look at those first century catacombs uh, or that catacomb where there was that image of jesus um that looks like the shroud the byzantine depictions of jesus look like the shroud being greek orthodox uh, the icons that i've al always grown up seeing when when i first saw the shroud of turin 
that was a very familiar image to me. I'm so, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I just don't think they do look anything like the shroud. The Pantocrator does you not. Be look me. Like, no, it's a man with the beard. Lots of people have got beards. But to say that it looks like the shroud, the shroud has got a very particular and distinctive rectangular looking face. Whereas every single one of the Byzantine icons has a sort of like a tear shaped face where they're pointed at the bottom and round at the top. Uh, yeah, Sting I think uh, that's the eye of the ball. <laughs> okay, if you like, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm prepared to accept that. But I, I, I think it's I think it's entirely mythological. I think people can just take a look for themselves and see yeah, sure. the striking. <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't look like the anglicized version of Jesus with the blonde hair and. No, uh, it just doesn't have the right shape. It doesn't look anything like the shroud. Yeah, I, just like the nose, the eyes. They're almost clean shaven, except for a spindly little uh, um, two wisps of moustache coming down the side of the, of the mouth and a delicate little beard. This sort of thing is nothing like the shroud at all. It's like the hairstyles of Byzantine people of the 3rd and 4th and 5th century. Well, I'm sure you've seen the recreations of the face from the shroud. Yeah. And then you compare that... Hmm? to um i forgot the name of the catacomb was it saint catherine's catacomb the first century one where there was that the big shaggy one which has got alpha and omega on either side of it it's got jesus with lots of hair and lots of beard well that that to me looks quite shroud like and that was first sent that's a first century depiction in a catacomb where uh, the christians but but yeah third uh, well yeah, soon, yes. I mean, obviously, if you draw a million pictures, then sooner or later, one of them has got a little bit more, look a bit more like the shroud than the others. Yeah, but, but this anyway, one was like no. before there was influence. I, I, I but it's just a man, it's a man with long hair and a beard. All sorts of people had long hair and beard. Uh, you know, God. They don't all look like, they don't all look like uh, the, the man no. on the shroud. I don't think that man looks like the man on the shroud. I'm, I'm sorry. I mean, I'm perfectly prepared for other people to say that all men with beards look exactly the same. But <laughs> we, we people who have beards, and David knows this very well, <laughs> we can tell the difference between one beard and another. We know the difference between a moustache and another. I'm not looking at the beard. I'm looking at the eyes. I'm looking at the nose. Um, oh, so I'm not looking at the beard at all. Anybody who draws two eyes and a nose. I mean, almost everybody, every single Byzantine painting, or mosaic especially, has got these massive great eyes, which everyone says is unique to the shroud. But in fact, it's true of every single apostle that's ever been produced course, on a Byzantine painting. Of course, the mosaic being what it is, is extremely imprecise, oh, yeah. given that it's a mosaic. But um, back to your whole Easter cloth. Yeah, 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 if you like. So... There, the, the problems with this are, okay, let's just break yeah, it down. There is, there is one problem, but if, if you can find it, well done. Oh, I can find a lot of problems with it. Um, so, 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 so somebody is going to just make this cloth for like a, an Easter ceremony. Yes. Um, so let's get into... Because if if you are saying, which I think you are, that the Shroud of Turin is this Easter cloth, somebody back in medieval times 
uh, went through a whole lot of trouble for just a, an Easter ceremony at a church, and they went, and they're so ingenious that nobody in this day and age with all of our advanced technology and knowledge and all of that can recreate it. And so now let's get down to the details in terms of to get what we have on the Shroud of Turin, what this, yeah. because somebody's going to, by the end of this, somebody is going to believe believing in a miracle, whether it's uh, the miracle of the resurrection and that it left this imprint or the miracle of some forger or artist being able to pull this off. Because let's get into what has to happen. So let's start off with just and before the you do, drawing. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna jump in here and say uh, we'll start winding up at this point, and we winding, and we will pick it up the next time. I know that some of the shroud. Episodes before Wait. going into three and four hour. Oh parts. come on now! You gotta <laughs> Wait to see whether anybody what's interesting. Right. right, but I so I do. Hit. This is the best part. I I understand. So I want you to I want you to knock it out of the park, um, and I just want you to alert the people. Yes, this is we're we're rounding into the last sections here for both sides. So begin to uh, make your best argument here, and also try to round off what you are. Uh, won't you say as a kind of a closing thought for uh, why you think uh, it is so reasonable and or unreasonable to believe and or not believe? Uh, David, we were just getting warmed up. I understand. Okay, so now I'm just going to have to do. A I'm English, but I don't get wound up. But we will. But we will. We no, will be warmed. Back. Warmed up, <laughs> yes. not wound up. Yes. But uh, but, but we will. Up. We will be back. Uh, well, I so know, I just but- want. I just want everyone to know this this will not be the end and they will not have said everything that they uh, wanted to say. Um, but we will explore more of this, um, hopefully, uh, before too long. Uh, we can get into questions about uh, the age of the Shroud, the dating, that sort of thing. Um, I was hoping to make that the next time. But if we have to do more on uh, the image, that's fine, too. Teddy, uh, go ahead. Uh, uh- all right. So. Okay, let's have four things or five things, if you like, that the medieval uh, creator of this liturgical cloth had to achieve. Oh, we got a lot more than four or five things, but let's just start off with first, why would they put, whether it's real blood stains or not, why would they put blood stains in the wrist area and not the palm area where? it's traditionally seen in art that that would throw off all the parishioners thinking well who's the moron that put it in the wrist don't they know it's supposed to go in the palm second of all there is a cap of thorns when you look at the blood stains on the head and of course the shroud is a double image of a frontal and dorsal image and we can see through all of the blood stains around the head. Now, we don't unfortunately have the image at the top of the head, the very tip top, because the shroud didn't capture that image. Um, but we can see that the that given how many uh, pin uh, or, or, or punctures there are, which are consistent with the crown of thorns, uh, which of course, if you're doing an Easter cloth would be representing, but they didn't do the traditional circlet like we're, we normally see. They did a cap 
that would be what the uh, puncture marks depict. Sec then you've got on the actual shroud, there are depictions of, of uh, pre-mortem wounds and bloodstains as well as post-mortem. And you can tell by way of the way that the blood is flowing. And in artwork, you don't see any blood that is depicted the way blood is on the shroud because the blood that's on the shroud isn't just liquid blood that's been brushed onto it. That would then get into the linen um, and flow across the threads of the linen. What the blood stains that we see on the shroud are actually transfers of blood clot exudates. And so uh, there's the whole difficulty in uh, even creating that. Nobody has been able, because you've got just with the scourge marks alone, 60 to 100 plus of those, try to get all of those with blood, with doing blood clots, whereas you're putting one and then putting the other that you're not smearing them, which of course on the shroud, they're not smeared. The shroud shows the detail of both uh, the blood flows. Some are arterial, some are venous, and they are all medically in the correct spots. Where the the spear wound is, because that was a post-mortem wound, the blood wouldn't spray out. It just fell out, and, and the shroud perfectly depicts that medically, where you've got all of these forensic pathologists who've looked at that, and they are amazed at the medical accuracy that the blood flows operate in the way that they would expect them to, given how they see the wounds. I mean, you've got forensic pathologists who have basically done autopsies, with air quotes there, on the shroud, on a life-size shroud photograph, amazed at the details. Then you have, um, first of all, the weave of the cloth. This is a, uh, from what the experts say, a fifth century or younger type weave. Is it possible for somebody during medieval times to get their hands on such a cloth? Sure, anything's possible. How probable is that? Highly improbable. There is natron, like what the Egyptians used to embalm their mummies. Bits of natron on there. Where's the medieval forger going to get that? Um, you've got the side wound that, that matches a Roman lancia from the first century. That medieval forger or just some artist in medieval times knew about that. The image also is not just of a man laying down. The man is in clearly in rigor mortis, and the the shape of the man is of a, a man that is hanging off of a cross. And that's why when you look at, for example, the buttocks, they're not flattened like you would expect. So if you look at that, that uh, dorsal image, the rear end is not flattened. It's, 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 you know, fully shaped because it's off of, uh, off of the surface that he was on. And so, so for some artist to have created that, 
it would be hard enough to get their life-size model to to stay, you know, perfectly still as they paint the frontal image, but to do the dorsal image, the back image, the, the person would have to, the way that the shoulders are hunched over, the person would have to be like on one elbow and with their nose down on the ground in this weird contorted position. And then you've got the artist, Isabel Pickcheck, who's, you know, she was obviously uh, quite acclaimed. And uh, she was saying she did an experiment and she said that when you look at the shroud image in order for an artist to have created that image, they would have to be on a ladder about 15 to 20 feet high, looking down on the image. And, and even then you've got to, the artist would have to, to position themselves in such a special way in order to, to get a visual on a model in order to get those perfect human proportions of the image that we see on the shroud now some people are going to say oh the arms are too long the arms are not too long what we see on the shroud is foreshortening and as isabel pickcheck talks about normally in order to to use the technique of foreshortening you need light, but the shroud has no shading, no directionality in terms of a light source. And so then there's that challenge. Um, then you've got the fact that there are no brush strokes on the shroud, that the closer you get to the shroud, you can't even see what you're doing. You have to step six to 10 feet away from the shroud in order to even see the image. So how would an artist have created that image up close? Um, and, and you've got Michelangelo who created David and he gets the proportions wrong on that. So it's not so easy to create a, a life-size uh, image that is so perfectly proportional that it would fool many, many uh forensic pathologists then you have the uniformity of the image that has to be accounted for to where every thread the color that straw color that straw yellow color on the thread on each pieces of thread that color remains the same we only see what appears to be shading because more pieces of the thread uh, are kind of aggregated in order to give that that appearance. But when you look at every piece of thread on the image area of that shroud, they are all the same color. So when people try to do like a hot statue getting scorch marks or, um, you know, or, or putting with the, uh, the bass relief, putting pigment on that, you're not going to have total uniformity of color it's going to be a stronger you know color or pigment in one area than the other then you've got the superficiality of the body image where that image that you know scorch like 
mark that is on there, it only goes as deep as about one to two fibrils. And a, a fibril or fibril, uh, when you have a piece of thread, linen thread, each piece of thread is composed of many, many fibers. Well, this image is so shallow, it can just be flaked off. And um, to, to do a lot of these other techniques with oil, flour, other things, that's going to seep in to uh, far more into just um, that surface area. And then you've got uh, to have it be a body image where it's not going to fluoresce under UV light like a typical scorch mark does. Then you've got the... Uh, the serum albumin halos around all of these blood marks. Now, around some of the bigger blood wounds, um, it's easier to see those even without the aid of uh, UV uh, lit, lit images. But uh, for those scourge marks, what appear to be scourge marks, uh, you don't really see those those halos. So why would an artist put in that kind of detail, you know, for an Easter play and, and with, uh, you know, and again, you can't use liquid blood because liquid blood uh, would react very, very different um, on the linen. And Isabel Pickcheck talks about how the shroud doesn't have uh, an outline on it and so how especially is an artist going to get all of these blood clot transfers in the proper place to uh to mirror what the gospels say without first drawing an outline of the body so that then they can place uh the wounds and then remember it's not just creating one body that is properly proportionate You've got to create two, the front and the back, on this super long cloth that has no uh, no primer. And and Isabel Pickcheck talks about how good luck uh, painting something like that on unprimed linen, especially if it's watercolor, which is what what Macrone says that it is. And because uh, watercolor isn't going to take very well to um, to to linen and and it's especially unprimed linen and it's certainly not going to give you the superficiality uh, that we have with the the shroud image. So uh, you know, I I just uh, there are a lot of very very complex components that go into creating the image, the body and the blood image that we see. And like I said, I, you got to believe in a miracle one way or the other, the miracle of some artist that could pull that off with all of these features, because just pulling one or two features off, that's not the shroud. You've got to pull it all off. So either this this piece of linen fabric is something miraculous one way or the other. So did I get a jump? Yes. Very, Certainly. very well said though. And, um, uh, Hugh, if you would uh, give your 
statement uh, and also rounded off. Uh, yeah, I think Teddy made 27 statements. Okay, and her what her brief was to start with to say what is wrong with the idea that somebody smeared a statue and placed a cloth on top of it. Okay, so we can ignore one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten of her statements are about blood. So I'm not going to go into that now. I'm just going to say if you just splish blood on the statue, the blood will transfer. So, but that, that has nothing to do with how the image was transferred, which was what Teddy's brief was. Okay, her next one was to announce that the weave must have been earlier than the 5th century. But well, that's nonsense. The weave must have been later than the 5th century because it was must have been produced on a four-shaft treadle um, loom, which wasn't introduced to Britain and uh, to Europe at all until about the 2nd century or so. So it has to be later, much later than 1st uh, century Judea. Then she said that the shroud was covered in natron. Having decided that, that there were no pigment paint stains or dyes right at the beginning, we've now got the fact that covered in yellow madder, and it's also now covered in natron as well. That's very interesting. I don't think it's got any natron on it at all. Now, more, you know, then we got a whole bunch which we can forget about saying that how could an artist have painted it with brush strokes? He'd have to step back. And um, what's the other one that we've got? Something, something like that, which is all about what happens if the artist paints it. There's no outline. Of course there's no outline. If you smear a statue and you, and you spread a sheet on it, you don't get an outline. So I think she was reading from a whole list of stuff that was mostly aimed at a different hypothesis from the one that I came up with. However, she did come up with some interesting ideas. Um, oh, yes, she said, how would you use a person? Would you have to turn the person upside down and push his face into the ground? I wasn't suggesting using a person. I was suggesting using a wooden model. Uh, what else have we got? Now... She didn't seem to have any idea about what foreshortening was and the fact that you need light to do foreshortening or something daft like that. Foreshortening, uh, and I'm not sure that Isabel Pixet got this right either. She didn't know what she was talking about. If you, uh, you've seen that picture of her standing on the top of a ladder, looking at Ian Wilson, I think it is, underneath, and she is painting, or she's sort of imagining that she's painting him. Now, if he's lying absolutely flat, then take his his uh, thigh and the calves of his legs are a particular length. However, if he bends his knees and draws his feet a little bit closer up towards his buttocks, then from above looking down, his uh, calves and his thighs are shorter than they are in real life. That is, in fact, not what we see on the shroud at all. If anything, they're longer than what we see in real life. So foreshortening has got nothing to do with it. Right. One of the things that she says is the shroud is a, 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 pan, a man in rigor mortis and also mentions the non-flattening of the buttocks. This only applies if the painter used a dead body. If he just used a model, then the model can have legs and arms and heads where, wherever the carver put it. If there's no evidence. If you ask, in fact, what is the evidence that the um, image of the shroud shows a man in rigor mortis, you first of all have to assume that there was a dead man under the shroud, which, of course, is circular reasoning again. If you actually say what evidence is there that the man is in rigor mortis, there is no evidence uh, whatever, except by saying, ah, well, if he was a real person and if he was dead and if he then made that sort of image, then he would have had to have contorted his body like this, so he would have had to have been in rigor mortis. But you've got to start with all those if, if, ifs before you get there, which I don't agree with. Um, a superficiality is a good point. I think that was the only one that I thought was was sensible. And that, of course, 
um, is what I'm working on at the moment, and it's not easy, I'll agree with her. So I started by just drenching a, a sort of bit of wooden former in a liquid and spreading the um, shroud on it. And of course, it, 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 as often as not, it does seep right through. Um, so I think that the liquid, the, the, the stuff that was smeared on the image, which, as I suggest, might have been wine. Well, if you let it dry and it becomes sticky and then you smear a cloth on it, then the image doesn't come through and you get that superficiality uh, that's typical of the shroud. So um, I think that's it. Now, I could now have a quick... Have I got time to have a quick look at all the blood things which were outside the original premise? Like, why are the nails through the palms of the hands? The shroud does not show the palms of the hands. The shroud shows the back of the hands. If you yes, draw, I agree. Uh, get any... Yeah, but if you find out where... Decide anywhere you like where the hole is on the shroud, draw an angle between the two knuckles of the... Uh, of the shroud's hand and the hole, and then measure that angle out on your own hand, and you'll be amazed to discover that the shroud wound, uh, the the nail wound, is not in the wrists at all. It's actually in the part, or well, it's in well, the I'm, middle of the. I'm familiar hand. with Zoo, what Zugabi says, and uh, I don't disagree with that. I agree. All okay. we oh, you had you had quarter an hour, and I've got three minutes. Oh, um, sorry. We've got. The cap, of, the cap of thorns. There's no cap of thorns. You can't see the top of the head, so you can't tell there's a cap. Uh, it's definitely a ringlet. All the main uh, shroud wounds are in a, in a line along the front of the front half of the shroud and a line along the back of the back half of the shroud. And the Bible specifically mentions how the crown of thorns was made and then uses the word for the crown, which invariably refers to the kind of laurel crown that triumph uh, victors in battle or uh, athletes were given at the end of the Olympic Games. What's more, all contemporary pictures of people wearing a crown, Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, Tiberius Caesar and Augustus Caesar, these are all the people who wore crowns. And guess what? Not one of them is a cap. Um, what else have we got? The idea that there's arterial and venous blood and pre-mortem and post-mortem blood. None of the arguments for that, I think, are at all strong. I'm not going to go into it now. But in fact, the idea that you can sort of somehow tell the difference between blood that's coming out of you just before you died and blood that's coming out of you just after you died doesn't make a great deal of sense. Um, what else have I got here? Uh, the scourge marks. The scourge marks look to me as if they were dabbed on with uh, something like a little piece of sponge with, uh, uh, with, with, with blood maybe dipped on the, on the, uh, on the scourge marks. The idea that the blood, all of it, turns out doesn't flow at all. It's all from a blood clot exudation. Try looking up a blood clot exudation and see what that actually means um, in, in medical terms. It's practically impossible to get a blood clot exudation. Once blood is dry, it's dry. And making it wet doesn't turn it into blood again. It just turns it into wet, dried blood. Um, I think that's just about it how could they possibly have got the blood in the right place well if you've got a statue and you smear blood in the right place on the statue then guess what when you spread a sheet on it the blood comes out in the right place i think that's as quick whizzing through as i can do okay Oof. and so i am going to just put a pin in it right there um, no rebuttal? No. Uh, we do not rebut closing arguments uh however we can take a note of where we are and pick up there again when next time we meet. Um, so I want to just uh, 
for my own uh, closing uh, at the moment, say thank you to both of you uh, for coming on and uh, speaking your truth uh, with such uh, passion and integrity. I sense integrity on both sides. And um, there's a lot to absorb, a lot to learn. Uh, While you both were talking, I was trying to hurriedly take a crash course in chemistry, biology, anthropology, weaving. I, uh, you know, this, this is all very technical stuff, I'm afraid, uh, that uh, I did not complete my online course. So I am going to have to go back uh, and listen to some of this again. Uh, I am preparing to hopefully have a conversation with Darren on some of this, um, because I suspect he understands more than I did, but what I do understand is that you both have made a fantastic uh, case and representation for your sides uh, on this sometime around the Easter uh, weekend. Uh, I can't imagine a a more uh, worthy tribute uh, to this celebration than a deep dive into the shroud so thank you again and uh, we will see you next time okay thanks so much and thank you hugh and thanks teddy it's good fun talking to yes. you it's good people who are excited about things and not just boring yes absolutely. <laughs>